0: If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Brandon. I serve as lead pastor at Summit Midtown. Really glad to have you here this morning. Um, before we jump into our text as we do each week, let's just take a moment to pause. And I want to invite you to put away your stuff, and, or just put down your stuff. Um, we hear the language here in Ephesians 6, and we hear about struggles and warfare and cosmic powers of darkness and battles and demons. And uh, it's just it's a lot. And so I just want to take a deep breath. Uh, before we jump into that, and um, just invite you to to, to kind of take all of your cares and concerns, whatever anxieties you're bringing into this space, and just hold them before the Lord here who sees us, who's present to us right now, and um, to whom we look for transformation. And so just take some deep breaths in and out, kind of get in your body here, and then I'll pray for us here in just a sec. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we open ourselves, our minds, our bodies, our souls, all that we are, we open ourselves to your self-giving, Trinitarian love, We pray that you would cultivate in us new desires, new hope, uh, a new spirit and power and authority to live as your disciples. Would you teach us what it looks like to walk in the spirit as we resist the powers of darkness? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've been watching the news lately, uh, but this week there was kind of a high-profile national incident that I think speaks to some of what we're talking about today, and you could pull these from different sources. But um, if you're familiar, my wife and I were watching the documentary of Alex Murdoch, So we're from the South, and Alex Murdaugh was uh, from this powerful family of lawyers in the low country of South Carolina. And he was convicted this week of the brutal murder of his wife and his son, allegedly uh, covering up a number of his own personal crimes, including insurance fraud. And what was interesting to me about this documentary was when they were interviewing his family, they were talking to kind of his cousins and siblings, family members, one, and one in particular, I think it was a sister that said something along the lines of, who is this person? Like, I, I can't understand the dichotomy between what I'm seeing here and what we're learning as it's coming out and this person that I grew up with. Like, this isn't the person that we know. And that was kind of an interesting statement, like not able to process kind of the, 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 the dissonance. Um, so ne- next slide, that's Alex Murdoch right there on the left. On the right here, some of you may know, you may have seen pictures, but this is Jacob Chansley, and Jacob is known as the QAnon Shaman, um, who was part of the storming of the Capitol a couple years ago. But a month after the riot, he was sitting in jail in Virginia, and he wrote this, to uh, a letter uh, reflecting on his experience and where he was at to his family and friends. He said, be patient with me and other peaceful people like me, who, like me, are having a difficult time piecing together all that happened to us, around us, and by us. Now, it's interesting, here you have a guy who sees himself as a peaceful person, engaging in acts of violence, being convicted of those acts of violence, and then almost kind of quizzically standing back and saying, I don't know what just happened. Now, we could read stories like that, and we could see those statements as sort of an evasion of responsibility, Um, and and people not accepting responsibility, and maybe that's true. But there's another way to look at that as a sort of curiosity about why we do the things that we do. If you're into literature, Fyodor Dostoevsky um, had a book uh, that you may have read in college called Demons. Anybody familiar with Demons? And um, he wrote this novel about a town that literally seems to have lost its mind. Um, There's murder and arson and suicide and pedophilia, And much of it is driven by self-proclaimed revolutionaries who neither uh, understand neither what they are protesting nor what they are endorsing. And he calls the novel demons and he prefaces it with a story from the Gospel of Luke of how Jesus exercised a man possessed by many demons. And he said, this is an account of a sort of demonology of human existence and human evil. And I think Dostoevsky was onto something Like these statements about, I I don't know what I do. I don't understand my behavior. This isn't the person that I knew. Um, To me, it kind of speaks to a deeper confusion about the sources of evil that kind of grab onto us and and tempt us to do the things that we do. It doesn't absolve us of our responsibility or our agency, but there is a sort of confusion about the evil. Like how do you, I'm just like asking you, how do you explain the evil, not only around you, but how do you explain the evil in you? Like the evil things that you do, whether, you, whether you're whether you a Christian and you call that sin, or you're not a Christian and you use the language of therapy like a compulsion or some sort of disease, how do you explain that? To, in my mind, as I look at the different popular secular theories that are out there that explain the dynamics of evil, whether we're talking about our culture moment, kind of uh, a, a sort of Marxist power analysis and power dynamics explanation, or lack of education or breakdown of the family, or the residual effects of kind of religious oppression from the past or mental health uh, epidemic. However you kind of want to analyze that sociologically. And again, I I don't say that like flippantly. Like I I think there are partial truths in all of those things I just described that help us understand different facets of evil. But as a sort of comprehensive explanation of reality, they all kind of fall woefully short and flat. I think there's something deeper and darker going on. And so I'm thankful that the Bible like speaks to these realities. And uh, we have been talking about the sources of evil. Uh, we started last week, and, and we're looking at what Christians have historically called the three enemies of the soul, the flesh, which we talked about last week, uh, the devil or the powers, which we want to talk about this week. And the next week, this is kind of a two-part sermon, Steve's going to talk to us about the world um, and both the positive and negative senses of that word. And so... We're gonna to talk today about the powers. And as I do this and we get into Ephesians six and we read verse 12, uh, I, I kind of feel like what I just did was like a setup to like a YouTube video for a conspiracy uh, theory. <laughs> I just wanna acknowledge, I feel a little dirty right now. I feel a little grubby because if you know me, I am the opposite. I try to be the opposite of a conspiracy theory person. But there is something too, like in any good conspiracy theory, which is why it's hard to disprove, you can't disprove a negative. Like you ever try to talk to somebody that's like in the grips of something and they're just so deceived and you're like, don't you see it? And they're like, don't you see it? And it's like, there's just enough truth. And you're like, I can't, not, I can't disprove a negative. And, and I feel a little bit like that this way. I'm just gonna be honest. So uh, this is not like the intro to like a Frank Peretti novel. If you grew up in a Christian subculture, if you don't know what that means, good for you. But, but there is a reality to this that we need to, there is some truth in what's being pointed out is what I'm saying. There. It's not all wrong. Paul says in verse 12, our struggle, our battle, our, um, literally it's wrestling, like our hand-to-hand combat and wrestling is not against flesh and blood, i.e. human beings, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. So Paul introduces this theological category of the powers. And I wanna just talk for a little bit about that. What, what are the powers? And, and how do they operate in our lives? Because it's not actually as creepy and weird as you think. It's actually pretty normal. Uh, it's just become so normal. That's part of the problem It's the air that we breathe. And then I wanna kind of end by talking about how we resist the powers, because that's the call here to stand against the powers. So what are the powers? Without diving too deep uh, into this, I wanna give you just a short little biblical theology, like the story of how the powers uh, work themselves out in scripture. So if you go all the way back to Genesis one, we are introduced to this category of the rulers and the authorities. What's later called the divine council. I don't know if you're familiar with this language. Think of them like God's staff members. They are spiritual beings, who were created good originally by God to share responsibility with him to rule, to make decisions, to assist in the spiritual formation of human beings to carry out his will. So similar to what we see in the kind of the earthly realm. And again, when I say realms, don't think like the heavens are above and we're down below. In biblical language, realms are like Marvel's multiverse, right, it's multiple dimensions of reality, all interacting with one another and semi-porous, right? So they're not discrete; they're overlapping places. And Eden is essentially the overlap in Genesis one and two and three of heaven and earth. It's the cosmic temple where heaven and earth actually uh, come together. And so similar to where God says reign and rule to human beings, he says to the divine council, you also are given a measure of reigning and ruling, some limited authority and power. And your job is to help bring goodness and life into the world. Now, we don't get the whole story in Genesis uh, 1, 2, and 3, but there is, we learn later, if you read Isaiah, if you read Ezekiel, it's called the apocalyptic literature, Daniel and, and places like this. There is a rebellion that happens in the heavenly realm that mirrors the rebellion and actually is the source of the rebellion that we see in Genesis three with Adam and Eve and read about a few weeks ago. There is an attempted coup to seize authority and autonomy from God and to redefine evil and good for themselves. And then as they engage in that deception, these spiritual forces and they get hostile against God, they also deceive human beings into rebellion with them. And all of this kind of culminates in Babel in Genesis chapter 11, when they're building that temple, they're building that shrine uh, against God, um, and God scatters the human rebels. But we forget, the Bible tells us, he also scatters the spiritual rebels as well throughout the earth. And this is why when the biblical prophets look out at the violent empires of their day, whether we're talking about Egypt and Pharaoh, or we're looking at Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, or eventually even Israel herself, The prophets see two dimensions to all chaos and all injustice. They see human rebellion for sure, but they also see the spiritual rebellion that is corrupting the human rebellion and sits behind the sort of idolatry and injustice of money and sex and power. Those are the primary gods in the Old Testament, money, sex, power, right, that corrupts Israel. And the ruler of this band of rebellious evil forces has come to be known by many names and titles, but probably the most common is Hasatan or the Satan, right? Which again, just like with Jesus Christ, that's not his first and last name. It's not like Satan, you know, on his license or whatever. That is a title that that means the adversary or the accuser, right, or the slanderer. Essentially, Satan is the embodiment of everything that is anti-God, right? He is anti-life. He is anti-shalom, he is anti-love. And he's given in some mysterious providence that we don't understand. He is given in some, He's given limited dominion and rule. So if you know the book of Job, the story of Job, he has to come and ask permission to test Job, which was probably his job description before he fell, was spiritually forming human beings, but now he's trying to deform human beings. And he's the prince of the power of this world according to Jesus. And so he's got this horde of spiritual forces that have turned against God and are working against God's purposes in the world. And so if you look at the devil, you look at the Satan, this slide right here, you can see all the different titles. Some of these are just a sampling of some of the titles that are used. But the point is, he's a bad dude, he's evil, and he's bent on undermining God's purposes in the world. And then his his horde of forces that are in rebellion against God become known as the powers. The powers were not just known to Christians. The language that Paul uses, next slide, uh, around what Paul calls here the principalities, the authorities, it's all language of power and authority and dominion, right? It's all kind of tied up in what has authority and what has power. These were words that came from, you know, a number of different sources, Jewish angelology and demonology, some of these concepts. Some of these came from the Greco-Roman mythological kind of world. So Paul's taking these terms, and he's saying, what you see out as a pagan, here's the reality, right? Whether you're religious or not, this is just the world in which we live. It's full of these spiritual powers that are either serving God or working against God's purposes in the world. Rich Viotis, pastor, uh, defines it in his great book, Good and Beautiful and Kind. He says, The powers are spiritual forces that become hostile, taking root in individuals, ideologies, and institutions with the goal of deception, division, and depersonalization. John Mark Comer in Live No Lies says, if you put all this together, the flesh and the the devil are the powers in the world. Here's essentially the formula that you get. Deceptive ideas, that's the flesh, that play to disordered desires, or excuse me, that's the flesh, deceptive ideas is the powers, that play to disordered desires, which are normalized in a sinful society called the world, which Steve will talk to us about next week. So let me just summarize that. You're like, that's a lot. Okay. Let me just summarize it, put in a couple bullet points. The powers are, first of all, real, intelligent, spiritual forces created to serve God, okay? They became hostile secondly in rebellion against God and are working to sabotage his purposes in both the heavenly and the earthly realms. Their source is heavenly, but they operate in the earthly realm. They operate through deception to separate us from God's love and to create disintegration, division, and death. Jesus says, I've come to bring life and life to the full. The evil one comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. The powers get embedded, as we said, and embodied in individuals and ideologies and institutions. And again, we'll talk all about this next week, but there is a sort of alchemy where the the flesh and the powers combine to architect, co-architect, unjust and oppressive social structures, i.e. norms, values, roles, systems, Traditions, networks—this is what some people have called structural evil—is what the Bible calls the world, right? In one of its senses of that word, cosmos. And so, evil gets embedded; these forces get embedded in political systems. Hello, can anybody anybody want to try to explain? I mean, do we need any examples of that? Right? Our educational systems, technology, economics, families, healthcare. Ideologies like conservatism or progressivism or capitalism or consumerism or tribalism or Marxism or nationalism or racism or sexism or any other ism that you want to call an ideology. Right, An ideology is trying to take a partial truth and absolutizing it and making it the whole truth and then building a narrative with that as the sole center of the story. That's what an ideology is. And again, so they all have elements of truth, but they exaggerate those elements, and now you have an ideology, idolatry, a demon, literally, like, historically, around money, for instance, the church talked about the god of mammon, the god of money, right? It is a spiritual force, it is not a benign thing that you do financial transactions with, it does something to you. So, that's all, good luck, Steve, next week with all that. The last thing is, uh, and the main thing I want you to see here, is the real enemy for followers of Jesus, Paul says, is never flesh and blood human beings. Let me say that again. Our real enemy as disciples of Jesus is never human beings. Rather, it is always dark spiritual forces of evil that are behind human forces. Now that doesn't remove complicity, That doesn't remove culpability for people making choices. It doesn't rob us of our agency, but it does say we should never as human beings look at another human being and say, you are my enemy. And that's part of the problem with our particular moment right now is we don't have these categories, so we reduce everything to the horizontal plane. So how does this work? How do the powers, so that's kind of like an overarching perspective on the powers. They're individual and institutional. They're heavenly and earthly. They're visible and invisible. And again, the problem comes in our moment when we reduce it down to one or the other. We reduce it down to an either or binary rather than seeing the complexity of how the powers operate in the world. Now, how do the powers work? Like, how do they enslave us? I'm gonna give you just a real small explanation of this and then I wanna point you to a book that is the best book I've ever read on this topic. Um, it's called The Truth About Lies. It's by a guy named David Tackle, who was a disciple of Dallas Willard. And it's just phenomenal. I think it's the most helpful book on understanding how deception works and how we as Christians get free from deception. Um, But his main argument is that that is the primary plane on which we're operating uh, in our struggle. It's around truth and lies. So when we think about the struggle that we're in, and we think about enslavement and freedom, and what it looks like to experience freedom here, um, what's classically been called spiritual warfare, although that word is not in the Bible, that phrase is, not, is nowhere in the Bible, okay? Um, but this word struggle is. When you think of struggle, when you think of spiritual warfare, when you think of spiritual battle, I want you to not think of Frank Peretti. I want you to not think about the exorcist. I want you to not think about Lord of the Rings with like two military you know, entities meeting on the field of cosmic battle, right? That's, that's not what I want you to think. I want to reframe that, and I want you to think about disinformation. I want you to think about, you ever seen the movie Inception? That's what we're kind of talking about here. That's how this works. It's inception. John Mark Comer in his book again says, dirty war is a far more fitting metaphor for our spiritual struggle. We're not up against the spiritual equivalent of the German war machine of the last century. It's more akin to bots, deep fakes, insurgency IEDs, and opposing street rallies in Houston between stop Islamification of Texas and save Islamic knowledge. That was actually, it's a true story, actually organized by Russian spies via Facebook ads. That's more of the flavor of what we're talking about with spiritual warfare. And it's important that we understand the dynamics. And what Paul says here, if you look in verse 11, he says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against what he calls the schemes or the wiles, literally the word here is the methods, like Satan has methods that are crafty. And that's why in John chapter eight, where Jesus talks about this, he talks about this in terms of freedom and truth and lies, and he calls Satan the father of lies, which is of course a reference back to Genesis chapter three and the original deception of Adam and Eve, our parents. And Jesus in this passage here, if you go onto that slide, um, in John chapter eight, he, he basically frames our primary human struggle as one of truth versus lies, right? The primary stratagem of the powers is deception and lies. Now, what do I mean when I say truth and lies? Because right, we live in kind of this weird post-truth moment where we can't get an agreed upon definition of basic facts and narratives and realities. Everybody has their narrative What I mean by truth, biblically truth, is essentially reality as God defines it, it's truth. Tackle says truth is all of reality, seen and unseen by us, as it is seen and known by God, which then makes a lie what? Unreality. A lie and deception is a sort of propaganda about the nature of reality. It's, it's what people used to, if you, if you read Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs, uh, he talked about Steve Jobs has this ability to cast what he called a reality distortion field around him. Like he was really good at selling you on an idea and making you think this was actually this. And, and people felt like gaslit all the time when they, I guess when they hung around him. But that's, that's kind of how deception works. Tackle goes on to say, deception includes all of our perceptions or interpretations of reality that are incomplete or distorted in some way. This goes far beyond the basic notion of being tricked or being tempted to sin. So don't think of Satan with like the pitchfork or like Will Ferrell's Ferrell's like, you know, demon on the shoulder. Um, He says it includes nearly everything we think or believe that is in any way flawed, any misplaced emphasis, uh, emphasis on life issues or the various aspects of relationships, any foundational matter about which we are uncertain or confused. And even things that we simply do not know that we ought to know for the sake of a life well lived. This is what the Bible calls wisdom, right? Like you can be really smart and you can have a really high IQ and you can absolutely lack wisdom. They're not the same thing. Wisdom is living life according to God's design. It's living life well in God's world according to God's ways. And that's why we have wisdom literature in the Bible. And Jesus was a master of wisdom literature and he actually came as a sort of fulfillment of the wisdom of the old testament as a teacher. And so the way this works is deception comes through satan through lies and it comes not in the way we would expect, right? It's not a frontal attack. Because satan's smart. He doesn't come at us like like here's how we think satan comes. Hey, you, whatever your name is. <laughs> hey you. Here is adultery. You know, Here's pornography, here is a gambling addiction, here's greed, here's envy, and it's gonna ruin your life, but man, it's gonna be fun. Here's a little candy, kid, why don't you get in the car? Wink, wink. No, he doesn't do that. Like all of us would be like, of course not, right? Second Corinthians says he masquerades, he play acts as an angel of light. He brings oftentimes good things that are created by God for us to enjoy in an appropriate context with the good of others in mind. And he twists that and he tempts us to go after that good thing, but to go after it in an illicit or inappropriate or self serving way. It's the method that kills and it leads to destruction. Like, right, like that any good lie, any master of propaganda. Like any of you have been taught like sales techniques, it's a sort of propaganda, no offense. Like if you're in advertising, it is a sort of manipulation. It's like give them 90% truth and then leave out 10%, right? Leave out 1%, right? And you have a really good lie. Take a partial truth, make it the whole. That's how any good lie works. And it's aimed at our mental maps. So let me just throw this graphic up that Tackle has in his book, it's really helpful. It's aimed at our mental maps, our ideas, right? A mental map is a collection of ideas that we all carry. Uh, Dallas Fuller defines ideas as assumptions about reality. We all have assumptions about reality that, next slide, get internalized into what we call implicit beliefs or internalized beliefs. Things happen to us in our life over and over and over again. We perceive those things, oftentimes. We evaluate and interpret that. Most of the time, we're evaluating it unconsciously, especially as children, right? And then we respond. And then over time, as that cycle gets strengthened, we move from perception to response. And it's automatic. We don't even think about it. You ever just had like, we call this triggers. You ever had something trigger you, and all of a sudden, you have a disproportionate response, and you lash out in anger, and then you step back, and you're like, whoa, that wasn't me. That's what's happening right here. That's a mental map that's been stepped on or weaponized in the case of deception. The mental map is just what's normal to you. You don't see it. Remember when Emily and I first got married, the easiest way to explain this, when we first got married, we did our first uh, Christmas together. And I began to realize for the first time, there are things that I do that I thought were very normal that she thinks are very weird. And there are things that she does that I think are very weird that are very normal to her. And it was just like this negotiation of like, oh, you do that? Well, no, that, that's not right. And it's like, that's like the first couple of years of marriage. It's like figuring out all the ways that all the things you thought were normal. Like I grew up eating ketchup and bologna sandwiches, and I thought that was normal. Right? I don't know why. My parents are not They're not here right now. They're in Florida. But like, yeah, Kentucky. I'm from Kentucky. So it just was normal to me. And then everybody's like, that's kind of weird, why do you do that? But that was like my mental map for a good meal, I guess. And so the the challenge is like our mental maps are largely incomplete or oftentimes wrong, especially when they're disconnected from God's wisdom. And so what deception is doing is, is trying to present unreality as reality, what's evil as good. And here's the thing, when we open ourselves, to deception, when we open ourselves to these ideas, they enter our bodies, they enter our minds, and they enter our souls. And here's the thing, we don't just believe those lies and unrealities, we begin to live as if they were true. It's a sort of like spiritual mental illness. The definition of mental illness is disconnected from reality, right? And there's a sort of spiritual mental illness that's at play in us where we've lost touch with reality, as God defines it. And and, and we know that that is the case because at some point we all bump up against reality, right? You can do something for so long, decades even, and then all of a sudden you bump up against reality. As one theologian says, when you run against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. And what happens is these ideas they kind of, just like last week, we talked about sowing and reaping. We sow these ideas, we open ourselves to these ideas, and then we open up footholds for the powers. And over time, those footholds become strongholds. And Dallas Willard says that ideas are the primary stronghold of evil in the human self and in the human society. And so I just want, that's what I want to say to you, friends, as I say often, we need to be so careful about who or what we open up our minds and our souls to our bodies too. We Wee Tan said, you are what you contemplate. And so I want to encourage you to give special attention to your entertainment choices, to give special attention to your social media, to your podcast selections, to your news sources. You are not just doing things there. They are doing things to you. And they are competing often with the Holy Spirit trying to, in concert with the powers, recruit your imagination, recruit your affections, recruit your thoughts. It's a sort of soft power at work in the world, this steady stream in our moment of digital consumerism and digital distraction. There's a whole business model built around hacking your brain, right? Like that's the whole science behind it. To get to the bottom, as one Facebook engineer said, to get, it's a race to the bottom of your brainstem. And and you're constantly flooded with these images, these ideas, these narratives, people bearing witness, evangelizing, right? This is the good life. This is who God is. This is who you are. And it's all algorithm-based. It's optimized to attack your vulnerabilities, weaponize deception. Now, again, I don't want to get too much into this, but like a recent study found that the average iPhone user touches his or her phone 2,617 times a day. Each user is on his or her phone two and a half hours per day, over 76 sessions. Another study on millennials put the number at twice that. The average millennial is on his or her phone up to four hours a day, spends over 2,800 hours a year consuming digital content, of which only 153 of those hours is Jesus-based in any form or fashion. You're telling me you're not being formed and shaped by ideas? I'll put up on screen just some of the people that are influencing us. And I'm not gonna make comments, so if you don't know who these people are, you need to know who these people are. Joe Rogan on the upper left is the number one Spotify podcast in the world. I can't tell you how many Christians I know that spend hours and hours consuming content from Joe Rogan, even though he, to my knowledge, is not a follower of Jesus. He might have some wise ideas about life, but my point is he's downloading his mental maps into your body. Jordan Peterson, the number one YouTuber for men He's giving us Jungian ideas about what it means to be a man, what it means to be human, what it means to flourish. And again, some of them I find helpful, some of them I find heretical, right? But the point is like, think about how much time, this is Jen Hatmaker right here, one of the biggest influencers of Christian women in the world, and she has become at this moment like a model of deconstruction, right? Just deconstructing the Christian faith in her books and her stuff. And again, I I, I know that like there are helpful things that I know she's dealing with trauma, My point is not to demonize any of these people, but it's just to ask the question, who is influencing you? Who are you opening yourself to when you get on TikTok, when you allow those algorithms to curate what is put in front of you and you give your attention to them? It is more about what you're being distracted from and what you're opening yourself to than anything else. My point is just in asking the question, who am I trusting? Who am I opening myself to? What ideas am I internalizing about reality? What lies might be entering my consciousness without me even being aware? Because that's where the enemy attacks, right? The three basic questions of humanity. Who is God? This is all Genesis chapter three. Who is God? Theology. Who are we? Anthropology or sociology. And then how should we live? Morality. And all of those people on that last screen all have a vision and an answer to all of those questions. The question is, is it leading us towards the kingdom of God or away? So that's kind of how it works, right? And so we internalize these narratives. God can't be trusted. I'm, I'm not worthy, I'm broken, or you know, God exists just to give my greatest happiness and I just wanna be happy, I wanna be free, I wanna be liberated. Like we, we have these narratives that we carry and they're often again good things with a slight distortion which makes them lies. And they lead in the end to ideological slavery and to division and to death into disintegration. We need to name these realities, brothers and sisters. We need to name these realities as we see the brokenness in our society, as we see the brokenness in our relationships, in our institutions, in our ideologies, but most importantly, as we see them in ourselves. We've been doing some family devotions the last few weeks and one of the core truths that we've been kind of meditating on is hate sin, but hate it most in yourself. I'm so blind to the ways that I'm complicit. I'm not gonna talk about you, I'm just gonna talk about me. The ways I'm complicit in my captivity to powers. And so let's just pause as we begin to move towards, okay, what do we do about this? Take a deep breath again. That's heavy. That's heavy. But I would argue, doesn't it resonate with like how you experience reality? Isn't it so much deeper than the ways we often talk about evil and brokenness and the powers? And we live in a powers obsessed world, right? Like this is the conversation our culture is having because they don't have these categories. We resort to other categories for talking about the powers. But it's exhausting. It's heavy, it's dark. But brothers and sisters, I'm here to give you good news. right, the good news from Paul, and from Jesus, is that the powers don't get the final word, right? We need a power. Paul is saying we need a power from outside of ourselves to liberate us from the powers. And that is why Jesus came. It's one of the primary reasons that Jesus came. Jesus, the very power of God himself, took on our human, captive, complicit flesh to set us free from the powers. Yes, to forgive us of our sins, but also to liberate us from capital S, sin. Jesus said, you will know the truth. When you know me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When you know me, you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. John says, the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came, to destroy this system of deception and division and lies, and so when you read this passage, I-, I want you to, like, the point of this passage is not wake up in the morning and put on your Superman cape. You know what I'm talking about? Like, individualize, you can do this, go be a demon hunter, slayer, ghostbuster person. I promise you, you will die if you do that this week. Satan and the powers are too strong. But that's not what's going on here. What's going on here? One, notice in verse 10, the power is not my power. He says, be strengthened. It's a passive. Be strengthened by the Lord Jesus and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of who? God. The point is, it's God's armor. It belongs to God. The power is his, and he gives it to us. But all of these qualities here, truth, righteousness, peace, salvation, the word of God, faith and trust, spirit-filled prayer, who embodies those that you could think of in the Bible? In their fullness, Jesus. These are all qualities of Jesus himself. This is what historically the church has called a theology of Christus Victor, right? A theory of the atonement of why Jesus died, that he came to defeat the powers. Christus Victor, Latin for Christ the victor, Christ the liberator. His whole ministry was about defeating the powers, disarming the powers. From his temptation in the garden with the serpent, to his teachings about truth to displace lies, to healing the demonized, forgiving sin, showing solidarity with the poor and the marginalized against the systems of imperial power of his day, All of this climaxing in the cross where Jesus goes before the powers, unmasks them, disarms them, undermines them, defeats them once and for all, and then he goes into the grave. He's risen from the dead. He ascends to the right hand of the Father, and standing over the powers, he then pours out his spirit on his church and sends them out in his name. That's the story. Yeah, Colossians 2 says this. He was nailed to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. So the powers have been dealt a fatal blow. But here's the, here's the reality, and this is where I want to end. They're not fully destroyed. They're not fully destroyed. They're still on the loose. They're like this shadowy, these shadowy mafia figures that exist on the margins It's kind of like D-Day versus V-Day, right? Like D-Day was the day, or V-Day was the day when when Hitler's kind of number was up, but there was a long period of time before it actually came to fruition in in D-Day. And it's the same thing with us. We live in this already-but-not-yet tension. And so the call here from Paul is don't just stand passively like a lump of clay over in the corner waiting for Jesus to magically deliver you from the powers. What's the call in this passage? Four times... Paul says, stand. That also can be translated resist, become a community of resistance. That's Paul's invitation to us. With Jesus, right? Stand with Jesus. To be a disciple is to be one who hears the call come follow me, come be with me, come become like me, so that you can live as I live and become a community of resistance in the world. That is the true heart of spiritual warfare. It's to join with Jesus in his way. Now, I want to make it crystal clear because I know as soon as we say spiritual warfare, this language makes some of us super uncomfortable because it conjures up imagery of violence and colonization and militarism and holy wars. And that is a part of the church's past that we must reckon with. We cannot hide that. But that was a miss understanding and a misappropriation of this passage. See, the way that we struggle matters. The ends don't justify the means. We struggle against the darkness and evil, not by taking the tactics and schemes of the powers, but we struggle following the way of Jesus. He said, I am the way, not just the truth, I'm the way. Follow my way. Jesus models a way of nonviolent resistance. And that's why Paul talks about things like truth, our weapons, truth, peacemaking, righteousness, trusting God, even when it doesn't make sense, salvation prayer, never once is there a call to take up arms and go storm anything. It's not there. So spiritual warfare and nonviolence can actually coexist, right? We don't have to be violent because God deals with sin in the world and he will deal with sin in the world. Miroslav Volf, a creation born Yale theologian who suffered immensely in all that was going on there, wrote several books reflecting on war and justice and violence. And he said, we must hold to a God of judgment. He said, a nice God is a figment of liberal imagination. And he's not like a, like a crazy right winger or something like that. He's just saying like we can't pretend as if revelation's not there. God is at war with the powers, we are not. And the way that he reconciled nonviolence is sort of active resistance is that in Revelation we see God is at war with the powers and that at his second coming, he will not be indifferent towards the powers, but he will judge and he will terrorize those who are violent and oppressive because that is the only way to deal with violence and oppression. But it's God doing that, not us. And the vision for us in Revelation, in the vision of Jesus in Revelation is what? A lamb who was slain. What makes Jesus powerful is not his sword in Revelation. It's what? His wounds. The lamb who was slain, who took violence into his own body so that we don't have to become violent. And that's how that kind of suffering love enables us to move out with a sort of power that the world and the powers can't understand. And that's why all the civil rights leaders from a generation ago, whether you're talking here, you're talking South Africa, they talked about a spiritual struggle. They talked about it as a spiritual battle. They called each other soldiers. We read Fannie Lou Hamer, you read uh, you know, the apartheid Desmond Tutu, you read um, uh, Howard Thurman, they will talk about it as a battle because it was. But they knew that their battle was not against flesh and blood. They knew that their battle was against the spiritual authorities and powers. And so they refused to return violence to violence. Greg Boyd says, one of the reasons we're so quick to engage in human warfare is because we're so slow in engaging in spiritual warfare. Instead of pillaging the enemy's house and taking it back for God, we pillage each other. From a kingdom perspective, if it's got flesh and blood, if it's human, it's not our enemy. To the contrary, if it's got flesh and blood, it's someone we're commanded to love and thus someone we're to be fighting for even if they regard us as their enemy. The primary way we wage war on behalf of others, including our enemies, is by imitating Jesus and refusing to buy into any aspect of the power's oppressive regime, including the universal tendency to make other people our enemies. Whereas earthly wars are fought with pride, strength, and violence, the kingdom war is fought in humility, weakness, and love. Any aspect of our own life, our society, or our global community that is under the power's influence and is inconsistent with the loving reign of God as revealed in Jesus is something that we are called to revolt against. So all of these things that we see, just finish up and go to communion, all these things, these are spiritual practices given to us from Jesus himself, that he himself lived, designed to kind of undermine the poisonous work of the powers in the world. Truth righteousness justice right like these spiritual practices help us stand in Jesus's power to not lose ground but in the spirit they help get the life of Jesus into our muscle memories and so we take truth and we and, and the primary place we find truth for instance would be scripture and we internalize scripture and we respond to lies by internalizing truth, learning to think and to act as if what Jesus says and what the writers of scripture say are actually reality. So it's, it's not just reading the Bible for information. It's reading the Bible and saying, God, would you show me with your light? Would you show me with your spirit where I am believing false narratives and ideologies about you, about myself, about the world? Would you expose those? Help me repent to rethink my mental models and then help me to walk in truth in my life. So that I can speak truth in my life. Prayer is a primary weapon, right? Prayer, contemplative prayer is about not escaping from reality, but waking up to reality. It's about pausing each day and getting quiet and seeing, first of all, the demons inside of us, asking God to heal and to liberate us from trauma and suffering and sin, and then moving out into the world and praying for our brothers and sisters, praying against the powers and the principalities. Thomas Merton, I'll close with this, said, when society is made up of men who know no interior solitude, who don't know how to pray, it can no longer be held together by love. And consequently, it is held together by a violent and abusive authority. But when men are violently deprived of the solitude and freedom which are their due, then society in which they live becomes putrid. It festers with servility, resentment, and hate. May God make us a different kind of people as we learn to pray, as we learn to walk in truth, as we learn to be people of justice, as we learn to live out the righteousness of Jesus and replace truth with lies in the power of the Spirit. This is who God is calling us to be. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words from Paul. It's weird and it's hard and it's dark, but God, I thank you that you show us reality in all of its both light and light, And the potential for redemption and salvation and restoration and the kingdom, your kingdom coming into this world and overcoming darkness. But also just the reality of just how ugly, how broken, how powerful, how ruthless sin and evil and darkness really is. Help us to never minimize that in the church. God, we just look to you. We open up our bodies, our minds, our souls. Would you fill us with your truth? God, we cannot do this on our own. We desperately need truth. And we need to help each other become a people of truth. So God, would you do what we cannot do for ourselves? And as we come to the table here, God, may we confess first and foremost the darkness within. And God, would you give us the light of Jesus to come and once again to rescue, to liberate, to save. We pray in your name, amen.